Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting from Witham's fifth annual Global Summit in New York City, and the keynote speaker had a focus that really hit home with me, how to fail less. He joins us now to tell me how I can fail less. Simon Ninens is Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of Wayside Technology Group in Eatontown, New Jersey. He joins us here at the Renaissance Hotel uh, on 35th Street in New York City. Simon how can I fail less? Uh, pleasure to be here. Uh, how, <laughs> how you fail less? Uh, preferably by failing a lot early on in life. And oh, you good. fail a lot but when it doesn't matter. When it doesn't matter. So you should practice a lot, fail a lot, and get better every single time. Usually That's- when you have a first activity, you're not that good at it. So tell me the time that you failed early that you think is, is a, a sort of a, a, a linchpin for your success. Well, well, we looked at it. I came to this acquisition. I worked for an auditing firm. And they hired me. Ernst & Young. Ernst & Young. I used to work for Ernst & Young. And they, they bought this company. And I said, you don't have a treasury company. You don't have a holding company. Um, so why would you, you know, you need that? And they said, well, if you know everything, why don't you come do it for us? I'm, I'm, I was from Amsterdam. The Americans came in. And I said, sure, I'll come join you. And they sent me to Paris. And the numbers looked really good. But when I joined them in Paris, it, it was apparent that it was uh, a big mess. So um, there you go. Failed. Uh, didn't do my <laughs> homework before I joined. Um, but we did, and I, I went with a lot of uh, youthful enthusiasm and tried to fix it, uh, did that. And then they got me to the U.S. here, and uh, it became apparent when I came here that we really had to sell the European operations. So I went back to try to sell the European operations. Um, failed a lot there, too. You kiss a lot of frogs, and then finally you got to, to that success. There's a difference between failing and taking risk, though. It sounds like you took risks and perhaps you know went into it without doing as much homework, but can you, I mean, it seems like is part of the issue that to be a good leader, especially early on, you have to take risks and you have to try to do the impossible. Is that what you're really going after here? Yeah, it's all calculated risks, right? But there are three ways to lead. One is with a fist, right? When we were living in a cave and you didn't do what I said, I smack you. You got to do it. Like it's parenting, right? You, you, you're my child, do what I say. And then there's the third, the second one is um, money. I pay you money, you're, you, we, management tends to overthink, people are coin-operated machines. And then the third one is really motivation. What really makes you tick? Why are you choosing your profession or what really drives you in your life? And I've noticed that as soon as you focus on the third one, um, yes, you can fail, there are calculated risks, but you love what you do and you do it for the right reason. So um, that's basically what I want to talk about. How do you implement that in your business in Wayside? So in, in our company, uh, I, I grew up under fear. And we, uh, it's funny, when I do these talks and I ask people, do you have a bad leader? The first thing that comes to mind is always that one bad leader who stood out. And usually it's the violence person. And it's not just physical violence. 
it's also psychological warfare, right? When you walk into that office, you got to come all guarded. You're like, oh my God, I'm going to go in. I'm going to get yelled at. I hated it. I hated it. This public humiliation when you did something wrong and that leader came in and it's your fault and look, showing off. I call that peacock behavior. Like, you know, you're my victim and I show the rest of how strong I am. Um, so I hated that. And I said, there's only, there's only two ways um, you can lead. It's, it's by motivation or by fear. So I chose motivation. So in our office, I asked people, what really drives you? And they said it would be great if we can work from home. Normally, people work only from home if they're in senior positions. I turned that around and I said, everybody can work from home. We started with one day. We're now up to three days. Uh, you can come in if you want to for the camaraderie and, and, and talk. And our office are beautiful. Um, people like in silence. People like to be loud. We had them next to each other. Didn't work out well. So now we have half our office. Nobody has a desk anymore. I don't have a desk. Half the people can work in the loud side. Half the people work in what we call the cockpit. It's a quiet zone, and you don't talk. Uh, people like to work at cubicles. People like to work in private offices. People like to work in a collaboration room. So build all of it. Don't force people in cubicles, but also don't force them in this open room or in private offices. Do what they want. Um, some people like to work in a Starbucks cafe setting. So we build a, we build a cafe, a Starbucks kind of like. We have an outdoor deck you can work. But the point of the matter is what really matters in our business is that we sell software. It doesn't matter that, you know, I had a manager coming in. She came in late today, and it was horrible. So I made her stay an hour extra. I said, what are we, in kindergarten? Is this, <laughs> is this high school? What are you doing? Well, she came in late. So I said, why don't we have a conversation with her? You know, underpinning all of this is this feeling that it isn't that easy to recruit and retain quality workers right now. Have you, found, uh, have you found that? Has it been difficult for you? Not with the retention necessarily, because it sounds like people are very happy with this. Right. But as far as when you go out and look to replace somebody, is it difficult for you? Yeah, I mean, we're in Eatontown, New Jersey, right? We're not in New York. Uh, so what do we do out there? You know, you really create a family atmosphere. People want to work with us. Our average tenure is much longer than our competition. And I believe in that. I, pl I believe paying a fair wage and really involving people. But more than that, we have a banner above the door that says, did today really matter? And I actively went in the beginning when I took over, and I worked my way up. In 2006, I started as European controller, then became a worldwide controller and a CFO and executive vice president. And when I became CEO, the first thing I told people is, like, if you're unhappy, you got to come to me. And they said, yeah, here's the European guy that, that's going to be helping me finding a new job. If I'm happy in my job, I said, absolutely, I will. But don't tell your manager if you feel uncomfortable about it. Come to me. Now, why would I do that? I did that because un unhappy people affect, on average, like eight people around them. And we all know that. You all have that unhappy person at work, and it's like, oh, we had a great speech. And then afterwards, oh, it was all BS. What he said is bad. <laughs> Don't believe them. We're going to go. It's terrible. Um, so I helped a couple of people find that other job. Yeah. And you know what they did? They went to that other company. They were happy. And they said, this guy was crazy, but buy your software there. That's a win-win. Simon Ninens, thank you so much for joining us. Simon Ninens is Chief Executive Officer and Chairman of the Wayside Technology Group based in Eatontown, New Jersey. With treadmills for the desks, this is Bloomberg.
Right now, we are going to take a look at the October jobs report. Ward McCarthy joins us now. Uh, Ward McCarthy is the chief financial economist for Jefferies. Uh, the numbers came out. They were slightly disappointing. U.S. added 261,000 jobs, less than people expected. But really, it's the wages that they didn't grow at all. And they had been expected uh, to grow. Uh, Ward, what was your first take of this report? Well, the the uh, labor market data continues to reflect some of the consequences of the hurricane. Uh, last month, the payroll numbers were really weak uh, because of the hurricane, while the household survey was strong. And this month, uh, that flip-flopped. And as you pointed out, the uh, weakest aspect, really, of all of this data was the fact that uh, average hourly earnings were unchanged. And they've been just very volatile in recent months. And two of the prior three months, uh, average hourly earnings had risen five-tenths of one percent. And I think that in September and October, some compositional issues played a big factor. For example, the low-paying food service and drinking establishment payrolls fell 98,000 in September, and they also popped 89,000 in October. So uh, the decline in September boosted wage measures while the rise this month uh, suppressed wage measures. So I think we really have to see the November data and maybe even wait to see the December data before we can really get our hands around uh, uh, whether or not the labor market has changed. So, uh, you know, I know we have a sense of what the Janet Yellen Federal Reserve would look le- would look at in these jobs reports. What's Jerome Powell going to be looking at next year? Because we, granted, the, the data right now is pretty muddy, still kind of being influenced by the hurricanes. Uh, but next year, what's he going to be looking for uh, in order to determine whether to hike rates three times, two times or not at all? Well, I think he'll be looking at the same thing that Janet Yellen's been looking at and that other members of the FOMC have been focused on, and that is, you know, what is really happening with the underlying inflation measures in the U.S. Uh, Inflation has been, you know, gone through a series of stops and starts uh, over the course of this cycle, and this year, of course, inflation measures have been uh, somewhat on the soft side. So I don't think that's going to change with with, uh, Powell being at the helm, I think that, uh, you know, the Fed is pretty happy with what's been happening in the labor market. Uh, They're still pretty confused and not completely comfortable with what's happening on the inflation side. I'm struck by the uh, tax reform bill that we got yesterday. A lot of people were waiting for this to sort of ignite growth, some sort of fiscal stimulus. We haven't heard anything about infrastructure spending. Uh, But yesterday, the GOP released their tax bill and yields fell. Bond prices rose. Expectations for growth seemed to diminish if you look at the uh, narrowing yield curve. Why is that? Well, I think this was another one of those by the rumors, sell the news types of stories. Uh, and quite frankly, a lot of the information that came out on tax reform yesterday was a little bit, um, I think, conflicted and, and confusing. Uh, on the corporate side, I think they pretty much nailed it. Uh, and the corporate tax reform is much needed. It will help make the U.S. economy uh, much more competitive in a globalized world. So that was, for the most part, I think, pretty good news. On the individual tax size, the changes um, make it really difficult to assess 
um, because the consequences are very different uh, for different types of people. Uh, if indeed, and this appears to be the case, that there is going to be a meaningful tax cut for uh, most middle-class individuals, then that should help growth because it gives uh, the people who are most likely to spend it more income to spend. But it also uh, causes some problems in areas where we already have problems, specifically with the handling of mortgage uh, deductions and also state and local taxes. Because of demographics, some of the higher-priced um, uh, existing homes are having a difficult time uh, selling. And um, uh, these, and, and that's especially true in some of the high-tax states. And yesterday's tax reform is really only going to exacerbate that problem. It also will uh, increase the federal deficit by $1.5 trillion, at least that's the estimate, uh, not including any extra income from faster growth. I do wonder, though, what that means for the U.S. Treasury Department. Does that mean that they're going to have to start issuing longer-dated bonds uh, in order to finance themselves? Well, I think the answer to that question is yes, um, both because, uh, you know, if this tax reform goes through, the size of the deficits is going to increase, as you pointed out, by as much as $1.5 trillion. But in addition, the Fed has started to shrink its balance sheet, and the Treasury securities that it rolls off its balance sheet um, does have to be financed by the Treasury. So uh, it may, it's not going to be a 2017 event, but yes. Yes, in 2018 and beyond, we are going to see the Treasury issue more longer-term debt simply because the government seems intent upon digging itself into a deeper fiscal hole. Well, what's your sense about what that'll do to yields? I mean, I would guess that as the deficit deepens and the U.S. sells more debt, that would mean that borrowing costs go up. I mean, that's the logic, especially if the Federal Reserve is also unwinding its balance sheet. How, how could that not play out that way? Well, I... I I tend to agree with you, and I think that is how it will play out. Uh, but it's it's a very slow-moving process. With the Fed beginning to shrink its balance sheet, it's the beginning of the end of the control that central bank balance sheets have over the bond market. And that's the normalization process. And as the normalization process persists, uh, that should cause rates to you know, um, move somewhat higher over a period of time. Uh, and that's both from the balance sheet and uh, the Fed and other central banks raising short-term rates as well. And all of this is a natural process of the U.S. economy showing strength and resilience, um, you know, many years now since or after the financial crisis. So uh, I'm, I'm just curious, because as I listen to you, it all makes sense, and I'm nodding in agreement. I'm thinking, all right, they're unwinding their balance sheets. The U.S. is going deeper into deficit. It should lead to higher yields. And yet the logic that seemed to guide markets in the past seems to be missing these days. The Fed is actually raising rates. Um, <laughs> do you think this time is different? Well, <laughs> it's, I'm not sure what you mean by is this time different. Well, the yields think... will actually rise. Well, yeah, I think that, um, well, this time I wouldn't say is different. I think that what's happening is we're returning to uh, a normal cycle. It's been the last nine years that have been different, uh, and they've been different because uh, of the use of central bank balance sheets to influence the financial markets. And as this uh, central bank uh, balance sheet influence over the financial markets uh, 
is is a great gradually eroded, then the financial markets will return towards normal, and that will give us uh, more normal cyclical behavior, both for interest rates and the stock market. How high can uh, 10-year yields go before they uh, send the U.S. economy into another recession? Well, I think that uh, you need to see interest rates substantially higher from where they are now to cause the U.S. economy to go into recession. And uh, I think short-term rates would have to be as much as 300 basis points higher than this. Uh, the 10-year yield, uh, probably somewhere around 200 basis points higher. So in other words, if 10-year yields were about a little over 4%, that would be enough to send the U.S. into a recession? Well, n- not necessarily, but I, but that's yield levels of, of that magnitude, yeah. um, I, I think, would be uh, you know, cause for yellow flags anyway. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Here to talk more about the tax plan and some of what Gary Cohn was talking about is Dave Springsteen, partner and head of the tax department at Witham. Uh, we're also joined by Tony Nita, the tax partner for Witham in Colorado. Uh, Dave, I want to start with you. One thing that Gary Cohn said uh, was that people do not buy a house based on the deduction that they get uh, from their taxes with respect to their interest payments. Is that true? I think it's a motivating factor that people buy homes, invest a little higher than their means because they get an interest tax uh, deduction, they get a real estate tax deduction. So, you know, I take a different view. Maybe there's a a level of uh, uh, taxpayers that don't need the interest deduction, but most of us do. So, Tony, just have you been, I'm sure, uh, spending pretty much every waking hour since yesterday morning trying to parse through this report, uh, the plan. Um, Do you think that it will materially change the outlook for smaller businesses for the positive? Well, I think the answer to that really hinges on how you define small business. You know, it's funny when uh, this proposal first came out, you know, I I get inundated with emails from lobbying groups just because I write about tax law um, for Forbes. And the first two emails that came into my box, the first one said, uh, Trump tax proposal doesn't, or house tax proposal does nothing for small businesses. And the second one says, uh, house tax proposal, great for small businesses. Depends on how you define small businesses because the idea of a 25% rate for flow throughs is all well and good. uh, But the reality is, people under current law up to $250,000 of income are already paying tax at a 25% rate. So who's really benefiting tends to be on the higher end of the income scale. So it tends to be the people that are paying 39.6% under current law that suddenly get a drop in the rate to 25%. 
uh, and that's where the real windfall is. And so, small businesses again it depends how you know if you're making three hundred thousand a year from your business is really necessarily a small business for some it may be for others it may not well dave who is getting the windfall because i've also been reading reports that the big conglomerates the international companies like ge and apple will as we've been hearing basically been ta- be taxed more on the cash that they hold and will be facing other levies that they currently aren't that they could actually end up with a higher tax rate after this is implemented than they face now yeah i guess the scorecard on winners and losers is yet to come the guys down scoring the tax law change, they only have limited amount of information to deal with this. But at the end of the day, corporate rates are going down. But we don't know how much corporate taxes. Well, but let me push back on that a little bit, because right now we talk about a very high tax rate. No big Hmm. company pays that rate. Exactly. That that was my point. Okay. Absolutely. (laughs) So we had had a discussion about that before, that even though there's a 35% corporate rate, how many companies are actually paying at that rate with all the incentives and the offshoring? So we'll see. Tony, uh, one thing that has uh, loomed large, certainly in the credit world, is that for highly indebted companies, they will not be able to uh, deduct all of their interest. This could potentially, frankly, mean life or death for some of the uh, smaller, more levered companies. I mean, you think about a Toys R Us, for example. They would have probably gone into bankruptcy earlier if they couldn't deduct as much of their interest as they could. What are you hearing about that? Well, the proposal we saw yesterday builds in a safeguard. So any company uh, with average receipts of less than $25 million is not going to be subject to the interest limitation. But, yeah, any, anybody beyond that, what they're trying to do, um, it's really kind of threefold. I mean, number one, they need a way to pay for these corporate tax cuts, right? So you raise some additional revenue by deni- denying deduction for interest expense. Uh, number two... You're trying to shift uh, the dependency on debt away and have more uh, infusion of capital rather than loans into corporations. Uh, And then three, you're simplifying the tax law a bit because you no longer have incentive to set up a foreign affiliate, loan money to the U.S., and then strip earnings out by paying interest to a tax in different country. And so they're going to move forward with this. At least that's what they're saying at this point. It was certainly in the proposal yesterday. And again, it's it's a key part of paying for these huge corporate um, tax rate reductions because the rate reduction alone from 35% to 20% is a $1.8 trillion tax cut over 10 years. And the maximum size of all of these cuts, business, individual, foreign, uh, what have you, can only top out at $1.5 trillion. So you've got to come up with pay for's. Dave, are companies going to be filing their taxes on postcards? <laughs> I doubt it. I mean, <laughs> what about individuals? Uh, there may be a few that will go the postcard route, uh, but right now we have a lot of those anyway. Really? This okay, year. well, I'm just wondering from your perspective, this bill gets dropped. It's November. They're looking to pass this by the end of the year. They want to implement it as quickly as possible because any delay uh, sort of pushes back any potential growth that could come from this. How do you guys deal with that, Dave? Uh, We're going to be spending a lot of hours dissecting the rules, watching the changes. At the end of the day, we also need to be aware of the regulations that will follow these rules because it may be beneficial on paper in the basic code, but once the regs are done, it could look completely different. So being aware and making those business decisions with our clients is going to be very important. Tony, just from your experience, uh, how much can we read into what we're seeing now? I mean, whenever I speak to somebody, they're saying, you know, this is an opening salvo. What in this bill sort of gets your attention as being a non-negotiable point that will not change? Well, 
you know, if you believe President Trump, you know, that corporate rate's not going to budge, you know, 1% higher than 20%. Um, I, I think that's a part of his kind of the pillar of his presidency, which is to convince corporations to invest in Michigan instead of Mexico. And so I don't think you're going to see that change. I think what's really going to be at the center of any negotiations are the pay-fors. You know, I think the rates are pretty much set where they're going to be. It's just now everyone's going to hash out, as you said, you know, um, special interest groups coming up and saying, no, we need our mortgage interest deduction. We need our full real estate tax deduction. We need deductions for state and local income taxes. And then the banks are going to not be pleased at businesses losing interest expense deductions. And that's where the battle is going to be waged and the pay for When you do tax reform, cutting rates is the easy part, right? It's paying for those rate cuts that prove problematic. And I don't think this scenario is going to be any different. Have you guys... Reconciliation votes versus tax cuts is coming. Have you guys just been getting a flood of calls? Uh, they're coming in. They're coming in. <laughs> Frantic. Oh, my God. This changes my entire business <laughs> <Please> model. <explain. laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for joining us, Thank you for uh, as well as for hosting us. Dave Springsteen, partner and head of the tax department at Witham, as well as Tony Nitti, uh, tax partner for Witham in Colorado. And they both are here at Witham's fifth annual global summit in New York City. Uh, they probably had planned to talk about other things, but it, today it is all tax plan all the time. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.